<clears throat> Father, we thank you once again for the salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit and for his preserving ministry in the text of Scripture. We ask that he would open our hearts and our understanding to the great truths that you have expounded down through the centuries to prepare the world for the reception of your Son. We ask that we learn lessons from that reception and from some of the rejection that we can know how we are to relate to you in Christ. Amen. One of the things that we want, why I'm spending so much time at the beginning of this uh, section on the Lord Jesus Christ is because if you think about his place in history in the big scale, he came once and will come again. And the reason he has to come again is because he was rejected the first time. So it's crucial that we think when we think of the Gospels, in terms of rejection. Christ was rejected. That's why he was crucified. So the world, basically, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that's the theme of the Gospels. Uh, and it's a, we said when we started, it doesn't show anything about Christ. It shows something about the human race. And it's a conviction of sin. John said that this is the condemnation that has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light and didn't come to the light. So the very rejection of Christ is, in fact, an indictment of the human race. It's, it doesn't impugn the way God did it, doesn't uh, question how he uh, revealed himself, but it simply says that Christ was rejected because men loved the works of darkness more than the works of light. The other thing why we want to uh, be clear in, this, in, in the basis of the rejection <clears throat> is because issues haven't changed today. Fundamentally, the same issues exist. So it's wrong to think of the Gospels as an ancient story that it's sort of you have to kind of work hard at it to make it apply today. Um, that's really not true. The gospel issues are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, the, the whole rejection issue and God coming into the world and being rejected is timeless. It's from Adam forward. So we want to, we, we've gov covered in this first chapter, and, and next week we'll finish this, this introduction. Um, we're looking at the fact that Christ is a challenge to the human race. The incarnation of God walking around on this planet was a challenge to the planet. It was a challenge to humanity. And people were, were, were supposed to be ready when this happened. Um, one of the theme verses that I've chosen in this section is Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. It doesn't say that he just suddenly pulled it off. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And what we're doing now is we're tracing what the fullness of time means. Really what we're doing is expositing on the meaning of, Gen of Galatians 4.4. What does it mean to say that the, that the history was ripe for that time? Um, we have had enough background in the Old Testament so we can proceed pretty rapidly with this. Um, but we do want to recall some elements of our background study we want to recall the fact that as God worked down and through history after the flood, because you have to go back to Noah in order to get the unity to the human race. Let's get this down here a little bit. That's the point when there's no Jew and there's no Gentile. All people were saved. The beginning of civilization with Noah is an analog to the beginning of the millennial kingdom with Christ. Because just as civilization began with 100% believers, so the millennial kingdom begins with 100% of believers. <clears throat> and just as with Noah, it's an utterly new age, so the millennial kingdom will be an utterly new age. <clears throat> Just as Noah begins to walk out on a planet, a planet that physically has been changed to the point where it would almost be unrecognizable as the same planet. 
from what it looked like had we taken a satellite image of the planet Earth prior to the flood versus a satellite image of the Earth after the flood. We would say there's two different planets. So it is that when the Millennial Kingdom comes, because of the great judgments of the tribulation that will transform geologically and geographically and astrophysically the universe, it will be almost as though the planet of the Millennial Kingdom is different than the one we live in today. So there's great changes in that. And so Noah is an important figure because he started civilization. Civilization did not begin with the first ape that gave up bananas. Civilization began with one family of saved people who were under the judgment and the salvation principles of God. Then we said that this civilization paganized because it rejected God and became progressively paganized. And God allowed that to happen. And I want to take you through some of the verses that I, I cite in the text because it's, it's interesting to see how God and why God turned the human race over to itself. Um, if we look on... Um, See if we one of the section of verses that I want to look at is on page four. Um, let's look at Deuteronomy 4:19. This is one of those Old Testament verses that reveals how God set up history and clearly reveals that when He called Abraham out into a counterculture that would be constantly a disruption. That's why we call it the disruptive kingdom. Abraham and his lineage down through Israel would always be, have an impact on this paganized society. Until that fork in the road, <clears throat> there was no basis for missions. Once the fork in the road occurs, there's where the first missions begin. Because at that point, the Word of God is restricted to a section of the human race, not the whole human race. God withdraws, as it were, his revelation. He, he brings it down to his elect agents. And once you have the revelation stream truncated and, and moved over into just a small group of people, then these people become missionaries. So even though we think of missions as something in the New Testament, actually the theoretical basis of missions starts with the call of Abraham. And there's a, there's a constant war going back and forth. So between these, you have a basic war and a struggle that starts out. But in Deuteronomy 4.19, there's a surprisingly intense and strong verse here about what God did to the paganized Noahic civilization. He says, Don't you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of them and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Now notice this clause, which... The Lord your God, that is Israel's God, which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. In other words, he's allowed them to become idolatrous worshipers of nature. I want to carry that theme forward because things haven't changed. If you'll turn to Isaiah 47... Verse 13, another one of these little prophetic comments. If you have a newer translation, you'll notice the comment that is made there. Isaiah is talking about the pagans who go to astrological uh, seers. And he says, you, you are wearied with your many counsels. Now, let the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the content of verse 13, think of the mental um, processes, the logical processes. What does an astrologer do with the patterns of the stars? Well, 
they make predictions based on correlations to the zodiac and to the, to the movement of, of the stars, apparent movement to us. And when, he, when they do this, they're making use of a regularity in nature. So we have these natural laws. Now the irony is, whose laws are those? They're the crea- creator's laws. Now, the creator, in making those laws, does not make them so they force him to do what the laws say. In other words, God, the creator of the law, has the freedom to modify the law. The law, all it is, is not really a law at all. The law is a regularity in the way God works. We've got something confused in our time with natural law. Everybody talks about natural law, the laws of nature. And we all kind of know what we're trying to say. But we better be careful because the, the expression laws of nature or natural law can carry inside of it a very, very pagan idea. That is, that these laws stand by themselves independently of God. And then people like Hume and others have used this to say, well, then if they stand by themselves, there's no exception to them. And if there's no exception to them, what happens to miracles? So we have to be careful. God does not put himself in a box with his own laws. God works this way and sometimes, and these astrologers pick up this regularity, but you'll notice what God says at the end of that verse. He says, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Now, what's coming upon them as you're approaching? You know, we've gone through the Old Testament. What's the event here? This is an application of that framework. Isaiah is writing when? Before or after the exile? He's writing before the exile, right? So, let's think about this. So, you can read passages like this and come immediately to an understanding that someone without the Old Testament can't. Just remember the framework. Here's how to use it. Isaiah's writing as a prophet. When did most of these prophets write? They wrote in the time of before the exile. Why did they do that? What was the role of the prophet? Remember? The prophet was a prosecuting attorney. He brought God's case for violation of the covenant so that what? So that when the judgments came, they would be interpreted properly. So when did they write? They wrote in this period. So if we read in Isaiah... And we see this verse, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. He's talking to the nation Israel and something is going to come upon them. What's the next event? The exile. So the exile was an interference by God into history to chasten his own people and it represents an unpredicted surprise effect. And that's what God is always doing. There's unpredictable surprise effects. And he's challenging the whole understructure of astrology and the whole understructure of natural law. And he's saying, you people, you think because I've worked in the last hundred times you've watched me this way, you think on the hundred and first time I'm going to do it the same way. Now, who, who are you telling me how to run my universe? Nobody tells God. The laws don't tell God how to run his universe. Now, we infer the laws because we watch God work. And the last hundred times, this is the way he did it. But we can't say, therefore, God is compelled on the hundred and first time to act that way. And that's his point. What is it, in essence, if you think about his attributes? Going back to the very basic things that we know about God. What does this verse say? Stand up and save you. It's a challenge. Let them save you from what's coming upon you. In effect... What attributes of God do you see functioning here? One, his omnipotence. Another one, his sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. So he plays off his character and his essence over against this sort of activity. Um, We see the same thing if you turn to Amos, past Isaiah, another prophet writing in the same historical time period. And the people were doing the same thing Just imagine what those people would do if they had 900 numbers. Amos 5.26. I'll bet you there were some sharp Jewish businessmen that would have gotten business. (laughs) 
Now, this is a difficult one in the Hebrew to translate, and it's no matter if you go to different translations, you'll see it's handled differently. So, that's this is a case not where the text so much is different. It's just it's really frankly hard to, to because of the vocabulary and the way the Hebrew is. But in my translation, it says, "You also carried along Sikkoth your king and Kiyom your images, that's the pagans, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves." Okay? Now think again of God, the creator creature. Why does he add that last clause in that verse? Which you made for yourselves. What is true of every pagan deity? They're man-made products. It's interesting, the skeptics will often say to you, as a Christian, they'll say, oh, God is just a figment of your imagination. Well, all idols are figments of the imagination. In that, they say truly. That God, who is the creator, however, is not. We're made in his image. He isn't made in ours. So it's reversed. But notice in verse 26 that the people in this period of time were going like crazy into astrology. Now, what do you see after 3,000 years that have elapsed since these passages? Okay, 2,500 years, 3,000. What are we doing today? Going to astrology. Now, what's changed? We have automobiles, they had chariots. But we have astrologers, and they have astrologers. And the thought processes today are identical to the thought processes here. And what are those thought processes? Once again, those thought processes lie at the root of the paganization of civilization. It's not new. Homosexuality, astrology, sin, violence, these are not new. They are part and parcel of the stream of paganized civilization where Noah's once great enterprise was sabotaged by sin. Now, all of this to say that God let this happen. That's what Deuteronomy 4.19, and if you'll turn to Acts 14, we want to look at two of, of Paul's evangelistic sermons. Two Gentiles. And if you look at the way he introduces himself and the gospel to a paganized society, you'll see how he comes on. It's not the sort of sales approach that he would get counsel to in certain church growth movements today. Notice in Acts 14, in verse... um, Let's see, let's go down to verse um, 16. And your notes are wrong, should be Acts um, 14, 16. And in all generations gone by, who permitted all the nations to go their own ways? God did. What is he talking about? Same thing in Deuteronomy 4, 19. The same principle. God allowed the nations to paganize out in their own private versions of paganism. Go their own ways. And then, Paul adds, he says in verse 17, but he didn't leave himself without witness. What does that mean? That means that all nations that are going their own ways, can they come before the final judgment seat of history and plead ignorance? No, No plea of ignorance here. So verse 17 must be balanced with verse 16. Though God allows the civilization to paganize and self-destruct, it does not follow thereby that they're held guiltless. They still continue to have the witness of God. And Paul recommends in verse 15, he says, we preach the gospel, that you should turn from these stupid vain, productionless things to the living God. And you notice the word living. It's a sarcastic reference. What does it imply about their gods? They're dead. They don't act. There's nothing historical. They don't do anything. All right, now look at Acts 17. Again, Paul's talking to a Gentile congregation or or group of people. And again, notice what he targets in his gospel presentation. He is doing something 
that you'll notice we mentioned several times on Thursday nights. Remember, we talked about strategic envelopment. You know, this is what the non-Christian gets, likes to do on us. Here we are, and we're a believer, and he says, well, you people are just weak, and you need God, and blah, blah. And so what the unbeliever does, he strategically tries to encircle us with his worldview and explain our belief in terms of his psychology. And by explaining us in terms of his view, he thinks thereby that he has basically effectively neutralized our whole gospel presentation because he's explained it away and he's enveloped it. What we have to learn to do better is when we talk to them, the unbeliever, is that we in turn envelop them in our frame of reference. And that's what Paul's doing here in Acts 17. He explains them in verse 16. He says, I know your, I know your background, people. Don't come to me and tell me all kinds of reasons why you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is why you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because although, in verse 26, he made you to live on the face of the earth, He's determined your times. He's determined the boundaries of your habitation that you should seek God. If you might grope after Him and find Him, for He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. Being then the offspring of God, you shouldn't think that divine natures like gold or silver... In other words, is He holding them responsible? You should not. Why shouldn't you? Because you're made in God's image. And what the implication is, and you know it. Because what does He do? He cites one of their poets. Don't tell me. Don't come up to me and tell me you don't really know this. You see what he's doing? He's wiping out the last vestige of neutrality. The last vestige of, I'm so ignorant, I didn't know that. Paul says, no, no, you knew that. You, you have been made in the image of God. Now, verse 13 Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now declares to you, everywhere should repent. Well, the implication of verse 30 is that before the gospel, he didn't do that. So the gospel is a new message to all mankind. And what Paul is saying is, again, that God did not challenge this directly, this paganization. He let it go, and let it go, and let it go. That's the background. So when we come to see how the Lord Jesus Christ conducts his ministry, we'll understand why he does what he does. Now, I say in, in pages 4, 5, and 6, it's just a review of what we've done. We basically expounded two lines. We've said the Jewish people have been prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gentile people have been prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we want to look at how the Gentiles and how the Jews were prepared. We've looked now at the historical preparation of the pagan world. We've said that in the previous centuries, from the... Um, let's look at, make a diagram here. The Gentile and the Jew. The early Gentiles, from Noah until... When did the Jews pour out back into the Gentile world? In terms of the framework again. Go back to the Old Testament. What was the event that poured the Jews back into the different societies of the world? What was the end of the nation Israel? It was the exile. See how profound the exile is. A very critical Old Testament event. When that exile happened, and remember the date? 586. Now, when that happened, what else happened in the world within a century and a half? Seven world religions started. Unheard of in the history of the world. Religions don't start like that. You suddenly have a cluster. Zoroastrianism, the reform movement in Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, all those religions started within 150 years of each other right there in the exile. Now, is that an accident? 
Or are all those religions doing something? What were all those religions? What was true of all those religions? Versus, I mean, what was new about Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, and so on, that was not true before? Well, the, what was true basically of all these religions is they are man-centered. Instead of worshiping nature and the gods, they now quite flagrantly and openly deal with questions in terms of who man is and man's right rules and wrong rules. Confucius said, I don't know what's going on in heaven, but I'll tell you how to live on earth. And that is ultimately the emphasis. It's, oh, they're all ethical religions that start then. All right, so the Gentile world, up between Noah and here, they were stargazers, uh, they were superstitious kind of people. After 586, to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this period of time, we have the ethical religions emphasizing man. We have philosophy begin. Now, I want to mention something about philosophy. We're going to see, when we get into the first event in Christ's life, the birth of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to have some tools to understand what happened at that virgin birth. And those tools are going to become to us through the New Testament, from the world of philosophy. Philosophy and the rise of philosophy was a precondition for understanding the complexity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an exercise. Wrong! The philosophers basically got off on the wrong track, but they were, so to speak, building the tools that would be needed to construct, for example, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That would never have been constructed in the, in the Old Testament times. People just weren't prepared for that depth of doctrine, that depth of truth, that clarity of thinking. So this was a discipline. And by the way, the sons of Japheth were the ones that did that. So that's the preparation of the Gentile world. Now we want to see the preparation of the Jewish world. And that... I, if you may, turn your notes um, to page... Um, oh, on page six, there's one other thing I want to show you about the pre preparation of the Gentile world. If you look at that middle paragraph, it begins with although, on page six. I, want, I got two quotes in there. and These were startling. The first time I, I found these, I thought, oh, these are interesting. Because what these quotes do is give us a feel for what was the talk on the street in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got to understand, part of understanding the New Testament is understand what the street people were talking about. What was, what was in the gossip circles? What was being discussed in the marketplace? What were the ideas that threatened, dominated, or intrigued the people to whom the gospel was first preached? Well, if you look here, where I said, since Jewish Old Testament scripture continued to circulate throughout the Roman Empire, its messianic hope, remember what we said in the exile? The scriptures broke out into the Gentile culture. The messianic hope not unexpectedly influenced Gentile pagan writers. For instance, Tacitus, the Roman author, wrote, quote, look at this quote. Now, remember, the guy who's talking now is a Roman, Okay. He's a literate Roman, and he's commenting on it from a Roman point of view, a Gentile point of view. But look what he says. The majority were deeply impressed with the persuasion of his society, of his time. The majority were deeply impressed with a persuasion that was contained in the ancient writings of the priests, that it would come to pass that at that very time that the East would renew its strength and that they should go forth from Judea and be rulers of the world. Now, I wonder where we got that from. People speculate. See, the problem we've got in understanding some of these quotes is the great library at Alexandria burned down. Sadly, it's in the Christian church had a lot to do with that. But when that burned down, all, thousands of papyri, I mean, you talk about a CD-ROM. I mean, it was like all the knowledge of the world was on one CD-ROM and some jerk came along and broke it. And so all the great texts of Scripture were gone. If we could recover what went on in the Library of Alexandria, it would revolutionize our understanding of history because now we would have source material that was contemporaneous with the Bible. 
all of that was gone. I think it was just a demonic attack because it wiped out in one fire, it wiped out all the corroborating evidences that existed. We could read the books that were circulating in the times of Isaiah, in the times of the Daniel, at the times of Jesus. Imagine what you could learn from that. All we've got now is the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those source materials are lost. But Tacitus had access to those. And you see, he's telling us that circulating in the Roman Empire at the time was a strong sense that something was going to happen in the East and Judea was going to be involved in it. Now, isn't that interesting? Does that perhaps give us maybe better insight into why Herod acted the way he did when he heard that Jesus was born? Why did he immediately go into a political frenzy of genocide to get rid of that boy? I mean, this wasn't just a man that had his screws loose. There was more to it than just a nut. There was an atmosphere that was feared. Now notice the next quote. Suetonius, another Roman writer, says, A firm persuasion had long prevailed through all the East that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time to devolve on someone who should go forth from Judah. This prediction referred to a Roman empire as the event showed. But the Jews, applying it to themselves, broke into rebellion. Speaking of a later rebellion, happened. Now, notice that first sentence. What does that tell you about the men and women in the street? A persuasion had long prevailed through all the East that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time, which would have been the Roman Empire, to devolve on someone who should go forth from Judah. Does this give you a little bit of insight as to why the priests were very alarmed about Jesus' claim to be king? You see, Jesus was like a match. And he was walking around and everybody had spilled gas around. That's why they were so... We've got to understand this, this response that Christ got. A panic response. I mean, bureaucrats went into a livid tizzy over this guy. They were afraid of the consequences of his kingly claim. And if you study these sources, you realize this was the background of what was going on. Very volatile environment politically. Okay, now we come over and look at the Jewish side of the house on page 7. And what I've got on page 7 is a summary of the intertestamental period because on our chart... We know that the Jews from Abraham to the exile, 586, what did they learn in that period of time? Let's think about it, summarizing the whole Old Testament. Between the time of Abraham and the time of the exile, all means Moses, that means the exodus, it means the conquest, it means the judges, it means Samuel, it means kings, it means all the prophets. What was the two big lessons that surely they must have learned, or at least God intended that they learn it, What lesson did they learn in the book of Judges about the power of the people? Today we hear about democracy. Got to have democracy. And yet democracy doesn't seem to work. My son was getting back from Paraguay and was telling about how the people loved it when they had a dictator that ran Paraguay. He kept crime down. He kept order down. There was less brutality. There was less violence. Democracy is not working in Paraguay. People don't like it. Get rid of it. Go back to dictators. And as Americans, well, democracy only works under certain conditions. You see, we forget that the foundation of a working democracy was what in this country? It came out of a Christian worldview and restraint. And if you don't have that, you can't export democracy. It's like trying to export apples and wonder why they don't reproduce themselves. You've got to plant the trees first. You don't export fruit and expect the fruit to reproduce itself. It needs the tree. And democracy needs a tree. Democracy is a fruit, not a tree. And we go around and spend millions of dollars, billions of dollars in the history of this country exporting fruit, hoping it's going to sprout or something. It doesn't work. Well, the Jews understood that because what happened in Judges? What's the conclusion of the Judges? Period. Didn't they have freedom? Had great freedom, right? No king. No central to government. No heavy taxation. They were free to do whatever they wanted. What happened? Screwed up. Society wound up in anarchy. 
So what's the lesson of the judges? What about the power of the people? What about human rights? It doesn't produce a civilization. Human rights alone do not produce society. People are fallen. So the Jews learned in the judges' period that the solution isn't more power to the people. They had that in the book of Judges. And the conclusion of the book of Judges is, what was the next solution attempted? If it's not power of the people, we're going to have power of centralized government to produce law and order. That's what always happens. You have a riot, it's going to happen in Russia. Russians are going to go back to a dictatorship. They always have, they always will. Democracy hasn't worked. People are starving to death. People are being victimized. And they will, they will choose, if the people have to choose between a chaos and order, with a chaos of a democracy and order of a dictator, you know what they're going to choose. What did Germany choose? What economic chaos in the, tw in the 20s and 30s? Germans had to walk. My father worked with some of them who came to this country and they said their wives would go to the factories in 1927, 28 in Germany with wheelbarrows. You know why? Because they pay them in marks. And the women would take those wheelbarrows down to the market and spend it before the money dropped in value the next day. And they got tired of living this way. So if Hitler can bring in order, let's go for Hitler. American elections. Satan could get elected as long as the American economy gets going, you know? And if the economy isn't going, Christ could never get elected. Because that's the thing that most people look at. So they learned that lesson. And then in the king's period, they learned that the leaders can't do it. Right? So what happened at the conclusion of the exilic period? The new covenant. What was the new covenant? It said, not all the people, but people with a new heart. And not any king, but... The king. So you see, these negative lessons had a positive looking forward. It was preparing, preparing, preparing for the fullness of the time to realize that there had to be a godly people who had to be transformed by the Spirit of the Lord and there had to be leader, a leader, who would dictate, who would be a strong leader, but he had to be a godly strong leader. And that's the Messiah. So that was the background. Then we went into the exile, and we had this partial restoration. So between five, or let's put it um, between, say, 686, or uh, 486, all right, let's make it round numbers, 500 to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll follow me on that page seven. Very interesting section of Jewish history. And this is not in the Bible. This is extra-biblical source material. The lower paragraph. In the period directly preceding Jesus' day, a great time of testing occurred in the Maccabean Wars. Now, what had happened was that the Greeks, remember the third kingdom of Daniel? The Greeks took over the eastern end of the Mediterranean. After the Greeks took over, and who was the guy, the big boy that basically at 20s, in his 20s, conquered the world. Alexander the Great. And he got diseased and died and left it to his generals and they squabbled around and they divided the ancient world up into these power spheres. And in this area, in the eastern Mediterranean, you had a group of guys, one of whom was so satanic that the Holy Spirit has said that this man is the forerunner of the Antichrist. What was his name? History, history will record his name as Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he did is in this section. Here he is now. He's one of the Seleucids. He's a guy who comes in. By the way, he was a philanthropist. So it shows you this guy's not walking around in a red suit with a pitchfork. He's not walking around with 666 on his forehead. He turns out that he is very politically minded. He is considered by most of the world to be a one-world type person. He wants everybody to get together. He, wants, he hates people that are always fussing at each other. So in the period directly preceding Jesus' day, a great time of testing the Maccabean Wars against the occupying forces of the Syrian Greeks, the Jews sharply and bitterly resisted radical attempts to force them to amalgamate culturally with Hellenism. Now, if you'll underline that section, that was the problem. 
the Jews did not want to amalgamate culturally with Hellenism. Now, you see, Antiochus could not figure this out. What did Antiochus want? He wanted all the cultures to blend together. You could have your cultural diversity, but you have to have a unifying force, and he would be the one who says what's going to go. When Antiochus IV, who was the prophetic foreview of the beast, demanded that, see, he was going to show the Jews a lesson. He got tired of these Jews. These Jews were the only people who had the audacity to stubbornly, after all the propaganda, after all the suffering, they still held to their exclusivistic religion. Now, you and I have all experienced this socially. Haven't you ever run across people who have told you, you know, you Christians, it's all right if you say that Jesus is fine for you. But why do you always have to insist that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and the only way? Now, if you just relax that, then I could be your friend. But you're so disruptive by this claim that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You, 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 you're a bigot by making that claim. You, you don't know what that, that irritates people. So, it irritated Seleucid. It irritated Antiochus, rather. So, he decided he was going to show the Jews a lesson. So, he demanded that unclean animals be sacrificed on Jewish altars. He's going to fix that wagon. The scriptures were going to be destroyed because he figured out that these people were reading the Old Testament and it was the, that book was the source of the problem. So, he was going to destroy that, get rid of the Bible. And then, he tried to grab Jewish boys before they were circumcised so they could never be circumcised. And then to add insult to injury, he would try to have outdoor athletic contests when they'd be totally naked to show that they were not circumcised. Well, while in the middle of all this was going on, there was a priest by the name of Mattathiah who had a number of sons who lived in the town of Modin in western Judea. He triggered a fierce war between the Jews and Antiochus IV. The beginning of this is reported by F.F. F. Bruce. Let's follow me with this. And by the way, if you want to read this, it's in 1 Maccabees, one of those apocryphal books. It's a great section. In Modin, as in other towns, a pagan altar was set up, and the inhabitants were summoned to participate in a sacrifice thereat. The king's officer, who was present to supervise and enforce participation, invited Mattathiah to offer sacrifice first. But Mattathiah loudly and contemptuously repudiated the suggestion, proclaiming that he and his family would maintain the ancestral covenant, though all others should be apostatized. Nor was this all, for when a more pliable citizen came up to the altar to offer the sacrifice, Mattathiah ran forward and killed him, and then he killed the officer who stood by. The altar was then pulled down, and Mattathiah uttered his war cry, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And they were off to the races. It was a bloody mess of a war. The Jews finally won. Great casualties on both sides. And then after a few decades, who else came to replace the Greeks? The Romans. And so here, kingdom number three is replaced by Daniel's fourth kingdom. And the Romans come and they start their suppression of the people. The people who remembered Mattathiah are people called zealots. You will meet them in the gospel narratives. One of the disciples that Christ calls out is a zealot. Those guys were the guerrilla fighters. They were the, so the right-wing militia of their time. They were the guys that would assassinate Roman soldiers. Why, the Roman soldiers had to have two or three of them walking around. Because at night, these guys would love to get a Roman soldier out on a dark road somewhere and kill him. They thought that was great sport because it was getting back at this oppression of their land. So that's the tradition now behind that zealot party that you will now meet in the Gospels. And that gives you background because at certain places the Lord Jesus Christ has to control because these are the guys that want him to do what? What's the zealot? The zealot has as his goal the overthrow of the Roman Empire. They want freedom and they want it now. Now, if Jesus can help me get there, I'll join him. But you see, the problem is, the agenda is whose? Jesus' agenda or the zealot's agenda? 
You see the false problem? And that's one of the things you'll see in the Gospels where Jesus attracted by his miracles all kinds of people. The problem they had was that the people weren't attracted to Jesus because of who and what Jesus was and God's agenda. They were trying to, in a way, use Jesus for their own agenda. We have the same thing today in the church. People love to hear the Gospel as long as it makes them financially blessed, as long as they get health and wealth. Because the agenda is still their own, but they see the Gospel as a means to their own agenda. And the agenda, the Lord's agenda. Okay. Now, if you look on page 8, you'll see that I have another quote by a Jewish rabbi. This paragraph on page 8 fills you in on what was happening inside the Jewish nation while Suetonius and Tacitus were telling you a few pages ago what was happening in Roman society outside the nation. Okay? Now, if you think what we just read about Tacitus and Suetonius, you realize that society, that this, this whole Messiah thing coming out of the East, Judah, that was, that was on the street. Now, look what was going on inside Israel. Prior to the first century, the messianic interest was not excessive. Although such great historical events as the conquest of Persia by Alexander, the rule of Ptolemies and Seleucides, the persecutions in Antiochus, the revolt of the Maccabees, and the Roman aggression find their mystic messianic echo in the apocalyptic writings of the first two pre-Christian centuries. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction, what's that? What was the destruction from a Jewish point of view? What's he talking about? Dates. 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple. The first century, especially the generation before the destruction, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed, as we shall see, not to an intensification of Roman persecution, but look at this, look at this now. Here's some Jewish thinking. It wasn't due to the Roman persecution but it was due to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of the day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. So, what I want you to say is that Jesus came into a stirring pot. He didn't have to stir it any more than it was already stirred. The fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Now, the thing that we want to see before we... Um, conclude tonight on page 9, we want to notice something about how Jesus presented his challenge. And uh, then we're going to get into the response next week. But I want to cover these next two pages. Um, I want you to um, look at uh, Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to deal with a funny thing about the Lord Jesus that we probably, because we don't look at it right don't see it most of the time when we read the New Testament. And sometimes you have to kind of have somebody outside tell you this so you'll see it. And once you see it, you'll see it in the text. What do you do with things like Matthew 7, verse 6? Part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The question is, who are the dogs and who are the pigs? They're the Gentiles. And Jesus here is using this terminology. It was well known in Jewish culture. The word pig and dog are emblems of pagans. All right, let's look further. Let's turn to Matthew 10. Matthew picks up on this, I think, more than the other three Gospel writers. Probably because he was a bureaucrat. And uh, he, he spots these guys. Uh, notice Matthew 10.4, by the way. Remember what we just got through talking about the Maccabean revolt and the zealots? You see how Matthew, the Gospel writer, what was he? He was a tax collector. I mean, come on, this guy worked in the bureaucracy. He knew the people on the street. He knew how to analyze these people. He had street sense. And look at how he says in verse 4, Simon the Zealot. 
So he knew what that guy was. And if you read Matthew's Gospel, you'll see that of the four Gospel writers, he will tend to point his finger at things and you'll get a, a feel for the little political forces and the little things that are going on. But tonight, we just want to look at Jesus' words beginning in verse 5, where he says, Don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Don't go into any city of the Samaritans. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then if you look at Matthew 15, verse 24, It's a famous story of the Gentile woman. Uh, It starts out in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 15. Behold, a Canaanite woman. She's not a Jewish lady. She's She's a Gentile lady. A Canaanite woman came out from the region and she began to cry, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and they kept on asking him, send her away, she's shouting after us. Come on, get rid of her. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and he said, it is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said, O woman, your faith is great be it done unto you according to your wish. Now, what is going on in this conversation? And we've got to come to grips with something here. And See, here's where careless Bible teaching gets you in trouble. Because we're so anxious to come tearing into the Gospels, take out what seems nice to I mean that Sermon on the Mount, great stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. Ignore the context. To whom was the Sermon on the Mount addressed? Was the church existing when the Sermon on the Mount was preached? When did the church start? Pentecost. Who was being? Who were the recipients of the Sermon on the Mount? Gentiles? No. They were Jews. When Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer, what is the kingdom He's praying for there? The kingdom that the Jews would have known. And what was the kingdom the Jews would have known? The Old Testament kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Pray that the kingdom come, that the God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom he's talking about. I'm not talking about the church there. Now, the church benefits from all this. I'm not trying to cut the church out of the blessings. But it's not as simple as you get, get it right off the front. So, one of the things we have to come to grips with is the intense Jewishness of Jesus. He was not one of us. He was a Jew in his humanity. He was not a Gentile. He spoke in Jewish ways. He honored the Jewish authorities. And he insisted that it would be to the Jew first and then later to the Gentile. Notice, he didn't reject the Gentiles. Here this woman breaks in upon him. She she demands because she recognizes who he is. And he yells and he says, you, you, you are a believer. But it seems that he, he has an agenda here. That right now, what's on Jesus' mind is not the Gentiles. What is on Jesus' mind through the Gospels is Israel and Israel alone. Look what he says. Don't throw the stuff to the dogs. Very same word he uses in the Sermon on the Mount. The dogs and the pigs. Well, if you look on the quote on the bottom of page 9... This is a Jewish scholar. And he makes some very interesting points about the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it helps to get an outside perspective. Jesus was born a Jew. He lived on the ancestral soil of Palestine, never once setting his foot on alien territory, contrary to all the hoopla you get about he went visited India. He taught a small group of disciples, all of whom were as Jewish as he, The language he spoke dripped with Jewish tradition and lore. The little children he loved were Jewish children. The sinners he associated with were Jewish sinners. He healed Jewish bodies. He fed Jewish hunger. He poured out wine at a Jewish wedding. And when he died, he quoted a passage from the Hebrew book of Psalms. Jesus was a Jew, and his Jewishness was solid to the core. 
Jesus was born into a definite thought life which was Jewish. He shared the Jewish system of ideas. The only Bible he was familiar with was the Hebrew Old Testament. His apocalyptic ideas were those of his own fellow Palestinians. No Jew was born and raised in the bosom of his people more completely than Jesus. He's absolutely right. This is an absolutely correct observation. Now what we have to do is say why. Why did this happen? This is going to be something that we need to understand when we read our New Testament. We are reading a Jewish history. Let's go back why we spent two or three years preparing to go into the New Testament now. Think about that first event. What, how does that explain what Jesus is doing here? Think of first, let's, let's make clear in our mind what his agenda is. His agenda is to share himself with Israel exclusively. He is to call Israel out to himself. He is not calling Romans. He is not calling Greeks. He is calling Jews to himself. He tells you this. We've just seen it. If, if Gentiles want it, fine, but they're not the main thing here. It's the Jews that are the main thing. Then, we notice historically, after he's rejected by the Jews, then where do the blessings flow? Outward from the Jew to the rest of the world. Blessings from throughout the whole world. Now, does this ring a bell about the structure of the entire Old Testament? First event, call of Abraham. In that call of Abraham, what was the promise that Abraham, number three, he was given a covenant. And the covenant said, I'll give you a land and a seed and you will be a worldwide blessing. Israel, from its very start, was never intended to be a hothouse and a greenhouse for the gospel. It was intended to be a greenhouse in that that's where the plant seeded. That's where it was nourished. That was where the soil was cultivated to bring the plant to full maturity. But the plant was not intended to exist forever in the greenhouse. The plant was intended to come outside of the greenhouse and shade the entire world. You see, has the method of God changed from the Old Testament to the New? That's one of the things I want to see. The structure is the same. Here, all of this is preparatory work to bless the world. That's the Old Testament. It's cultivating that plant, getting it all ready to fruit into the world system. Jesus follows the same methodology. Who does he go to first? Jews or pagans? He goes to the Jews. Why? Because he's in the greenhouse. He's addressing the people of the greenhouse. He's addressing God's special group, his special called out ones, his call nation. Now, one quick application, and then we'll close with this quote on page 10. In the epistle of the Romans, there's another passage that says, if the casting off of the Jew led to the gospel going out into the world, what do you suppose will happen when the Jews accept the king? What then? See, that's the same methodology. Because remember we said in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? In the future, the Jews will repeat Isaiah 53. It's written right there in the past. Someday they're going to, their eyes will be opened. And they will suddenly realize that this one that was crucified and suffered was really Jesus, the Jewish carpenter. They'll connect those two passages. And when they do that, that's the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom on earth. Right now, the Millennial Kingdom is pending. And it's pending Israel. Israel was the source of salvation individually through Jesus Christ and the blood atonement. And Israel will be the source of salvation to the world corporately at large, as it's clear, made clear in Romans. Same methodology. Nothing changes. If we'll conclude now by looking at page 10, this is Dr. Peters, who was for many years taught missions at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a Russian. The real name was Petrovsky or something like that. Very fascinating individual. 
Our Lord addressed himself first to Israel in order to restore Jews to their place, purpose, and destiny. Israel was to have the opportunity to be made into a servant of the Lord in order to draw the world to the Lord. It may seem at first that Christ failed in winning a hearing among his own people. However, we must not interpret this as a total failure. A substantial remnant came out of the rejection. Now, now watch this statement. Watch these next three sentences. The apostles, including Paul, were all Jews. The first Christian church was a Jewish Christian church in the city of Jerusalem. The first missionaries to the nations were Jews. Thus, the Jews gave us the Bible, the Gospel, the missionaries, and the first churches. Let's all keep this in mind. And in the book of Revelation, during the tribulation, who is it evangelizes the world? Again, the 144,000 Jews. So, see, they haven't lost their purpose in history. They're hanging around. They don't realize it. But God has Israel hanging around because he's not finished yet. There's a few more chapters in this great book. Okay, well, next week, we're going to deal with the response to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, page 11, page 12, and I'll hand out the response of the Gentiles. We'll get all that done. So, after the New Year's, when we meet, we'll get into the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this revelation of your Son and most of all for your coherent, perfect plan down through history. And may our faith be enlarged as we have greater and greater confidence in the consistentness of your working down through time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was just talking to a guy that's taken a course in college and he's going to try to do a paper on Christianity and Hinduism and deal with the 6th or 7th century exilic material. So it should be interesting. I want to see what happens when the professor gets a hold of it. Um, anything anybody want to throw out for discussion? Everybody's tired tonight. Yes. Oh, they're getting rid of it now. Yeah. Christian era. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you have you noticed this? There's been a very interesting change in dates. Used to be BC. And A.D., no, 1763, year of our Lord. And because the Christian church was in control of the calendar out of Rome. Uh, and just to be sure that we don't see Christianity as that exclusivist interfering thing that it is, uh, we're going to dilute that. And we talk about the common era now. And that's what, it's in schools. This is the dates. And if I were a student on the test, I would deliberately put A.D., 1763, on all my exams. Um, just to see what would happen. But that's, you know, it's a fine point, but see, it's the same slimy kind of stuff going on. Well, maybe with Y2K, they'll come up with a new, new calendar. <laughs> Leave it to Bill Gates or somebody. And he was not a Christian. So What's that, University of Colorado? No, Jesuit. Oh, Jesuit. Uh -huh. Well, that's interesting. Uh, what Laura pointed out was that historians who are real historians 
aren't the slimy type, usually. Um, the slimy types people are just people who really read secondary materials and a lot of times have, they, they just have an animosity, particularly to Christian students. Um, because, and it's really not to the student personally. It's because they have their own unsettled heart and they take it out uh, viciously on any Christian students that are identified in the class. So you just have to watch that. But that's right. The common error in BCE is, is the alternate way of doing this. And you'll see the pressure on. And I think we have just as much right to write the dates the way we want to write the dates. You know, if people don't like it, we'll say cultural diversity. Respect my view. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Um, next week we'll finish up the um, presentation of the challenge and response, and that should clear us out so that we'll be ready to get into the.